Hello and welcome to St Tom's Online. Please find this week's sermon. Good morning everyone. Our reading this morning is taken from Ephesians 4 verse 25 to chapter 5 verse 2 and I'm reading from the New Living Translation of the Bible. So stop telling lies. Let us tell our neighbours the truth, for we are all parts of the same body. And don't sin by letting anger control you. Don't let the sun go down while you are still angry, for anger gives a foothold for the devil. If you are a thief, quit stealing. Instead, use your hands for good hard work and then give generously to others in need. Don't use foul or abusive language. Let everything you say be good and helpful, so that your words will be an encouragement to those who hear them. And do not bring sorrow to God's Holy Spirit by the way you live. Remember, he has identified you as his own, guaranteeing that you will be saved on the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words and slander, as well as all types of evil behaviour. Instead, be kind to each other, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God through Christ has forgiven you. Imitate God therefore in everything you do, because you are his dear children. Live a life filled with love, following the example of Christ. He loved us and offered himself as a sacrifice for us, a pleasing aroma to God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, saints. Good morning. Let's delve into the passage that Judy has just read for us. But before we get into the meat of it, I just want to take a few moments to see where Paul is coming from in his lead up to today's passage. After the rich theological discussion of Ephesians 1 to 3, Paul turns in Ephesians 4 to 6 to an in-depth series of applications on how we should live and some tools to help us e.g. the armour of God. The overarching principle is given in the opening words of chapter 4 where Paul urges his hearers, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. That point of unity is then cleverly elaborated in the following verses. One body and one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. And this emphasis on unity builds on the theological ideas of the first three chapters where the key takeaway is that God has brought together all people through Christ. Jews and Gentiles together now form one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, which we read in Ephesians 2.15. God's unified people are the church, 
which consists of Jews and Gentiles together as God's temple, the place where God dwells. Another key principle for the second half of Ephesians is that since the Gentile audience has been brought by God's grace into this new body, they must act in accordance with their new status rather than their old ways prior to Christ. Ephesians 4.17 puts it rather bluntly. You must no longer live as the Gentiles live in the futility of their minds. Does he mean us? Immediately before our passage, the audience is told to put away their former way of life and that put away your former way of life and clothe yourselves with a new self created according to the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Being gathered into God's people entails a transformation of identity and character and with this transformation must also come changed behaviour. And our passage gives the mostly very specific moral instructions which aren't just Paul's hobby horses but clearly have their foundations in the earlier theological ideas. Now I'm sure you will, will have worked out the reason why Paul was discussing all of this and that is because he was once again counselling a church this time at Ephesus who seemed to have lost the plot on this idea of unity in God. Paul seems to imply or at least we infer that the, that the conflict was old it was in the past but that the members of the church are not letting it go they were still upset over some battle lost, some argument that didn't go their way, and still punishing their church friends or leadership. Now, sadly, I have seen congregations, and I'm sure you may have too, where members go to a different service because years ago they disagreed at a, a decision at, say, the PCC meeting. Someone wanted red curtains in the hall to remind us of the fire of the Holy Spirit. Someone else wanted beige. They don't show the dust. And ten years later, they're still upset with one another. In some, in some instances, the issue may have been more critical. It was about the treatment of a church leader. Surely that never happens here, you say? Well, sadly it does. Even in this church, I know of instances where members of the leadership have been badly treated. Or perhaps it's the treatment of some culturally or otherwise different visitors. Or the decision not to renew the support of a beloved missionary. But whatever the conflict was about, reconciliation may not have happened or has never fully happened. And this open wound tends to fester for years and sometimes even generations. And this is where Paul begins today with a recipe for getting past old conflicts and fractured church relationships. And after his initial exhortation to always speak the truth to one another, he makes what we may think is a rather odd statement. In your anger, do not sin. In our anger? Hang on a minute. Surely anger or wrath is one of the supposed seven deadly sins which even secular society recognise as something to be avoided. Well, apparently, Paul believed that anger was an acceptable emotion, even for Christians. But, it had a but, a qualifier. 
interesting, we do now hear the phrase righteous anger used in the media a bit more these days, usually, and usually rightly, associated with issues of racism. It's all right to feel passionate about an issue, to argue a, to argue a point with gusto. But when our gusto is hurtful to someone else, then we have crossed the line. When our focus is no longer on the issue, but begins to attack the person, then we've gone too far. And when the argument is over, when the issue has been decided, Paul says we must let it go and move on. So he, he adds this point. Be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. That is to say, at the end of the day, and here I don't think he means the literal day, you leave the conflict behind. You forgive and forget and move forward. And this is how it should be in the church. We are family. Over the years we get to know each other well. We forget that the issues we fight over are never as important as the relationship we share. Paul reminds us to be kind to those we love, to be tender-hearted and to forgive. This isn't simple motherhood and apple pie advice. It stems from a biblical commandment to love our neighbours as ourselves. Note there is no but, if or qualifier. We're not only brothers and sisters, but, and this is probably the more important point, we are examples to the world as to how the people of God care or should care for one another. What they see in us will lead them to conclusions about Jesus himself. If they see malice, slander and bitterness, they would choose to have no part of the Christian faith and who can blame them? But if they see tolerance, kindness and forgiveness, they will get a glimpse of a God of grace. At least some of the early church believers got this right, as documented by several commentators in the AD 100, such as Tertullian, an early, arguably the first, prolific Christian author, who wrote that the Christian's deeds of love were so noble that the pagan world confessed in astonishment, see how they love one another. Wouldn't it be lovely if people were saying that of us? See how they love one another. Now contrast this with a quote attributed to Gandhi, who it turns out was himself not such a paragon of virtue. He said, I like your Christ, I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. Christian scripture is shot through with the concept that while there is only one God, God is not alone. The whole idea of the Trinity is that God exists in perfect community, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. And that relationship is part of the essential being of God. So part of what it is to be the reflection of God is to live in community, which as Christians we are called to do. If we were to read on and try and sum up all of Paul's exhortations in today's passage in a single sentence or phrase, what would it be? Well, I think the answer is hinted at by our final verses in chapter 5, verses 1 to 2. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly beloved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself, gave himself up for us, 
as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. I feel the nub of Paul's argument is that we are called to be imitators of God in Christ. Imitators of God in Christ. And each of his of the following exhortations is an attribute expected of one who is an imitator of God. All of these attributes of imitators of God that are listed here are things that happen in community. We imitate God by being in community and we imitate God by how we act in community. And the most significant ways we can imitate God are those in which we treat each other. Sadly, as sermons are finite, you'll be glad to know, this will be a fairly whistle-stop tour through the remainder of the passage. So let's get stuck in. Firstly, imitators of God tell each other the truth. Now this is based on the notion that we're actually all part of each other in community. So dishonesty with your neighbour is not just a sin against them, it's also damaging to you. If you can't tell someone the truth about yourself, that shame tends to fester inside and eats you up. If you can't tell someone the truth about what you feel is wrong in your relationship, any gap between you is just going to get bigger and bigger. And this isn't an excuse to be blunt to the point of heartlessness. We must frame our honesty following the other attributes in this passage. But we must tell each other the truth in love. Secondly, imitators of God deal well with anger. This acknowledges that you will surely be angry at some point. By all means be angry, especially at injustice, but don't let your anger define your behaviour or let it fester. Don't let the sun go down in your anger is a useful principle, not just for wedding preparation sessions, but for all of us. At some point, you are surely going to be angry, but you don't have to let it fester and grow inside you. And you don't have to talk about it to everyone but the person you're angry with and spread the anger and distrust around. We deal with anger directly and with a healthy measure of grace. Imitators of God do not take what is not theirs, but rather work so that they can give extra to those in need. Imitators of God watch what's com what comes out of their mouths, making sure that what they say to others builds up and gives grace and, of course, is overall truthful. Imitators of God do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Ooh, wait a minute, what's that one about? Well, I suspect that theologians and Bible scholars have been uh, debating this for probably nigh on 2,000 years, but to share my thoughts on the subject. Please weigh and test. Back in Ephesians 1.13, Paul reminds us that as believers we are marked with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit. Seals were then, and to some extent still are, marks of ownership and guarantee. And as believers we are guaranteed to belong to God through the Holy Spirit and hence are part of his family, his children. So I think Paul here is simply urging us to act like who we are, a beloved child of God. Think of a wonderful family with loving parents and how much they are grieved when their children make destructive choices 
and endanger themselves, putting themselves out of the family temporarily or even permanently. God is equally grieved when we make decisions that diminish ourselves or others. Imitators of God put away bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice, to quote Paul. All those internal and external ways that we think the worst of people and treat them, treat them accordingly. But imitating or reflecting God means that we choose not to assume the worst of intentions, or hold people's wrongs against them forever, or dwell on the ways we've been insulted or hurt. Imitators of God hold kindness, tender-heartedness and forgiveness as the guiding principle in their dealings with others. They assume generally good intentions and give people room to make mistakes. Our God is the God of second chances. Are we people willing to give second chances to those who have grieved us? They remember that they've received grace and forgiveness from God and from other people and they share that grace and forgiveness with others. Often by giving them second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth chances. So friends, let us examine ourselves and, and see how many of these good values and practices do we see in our own individual lives. How have we grown further into these qualities over time? And where do we still have room for growth? Ask God through the Holy Spirit to reveal these answers to you. I acknowledge this is a brave prayer. But the Lord will bless us as we seek to grow in him. Now none of us is ever going to be perfect or fully imitate God in this life. But as beloved children of God, we are to a greater or lesser degree imitators of God. So how much of God do we see when we gaze into our mirror? Amen. <laughs>